History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to History Goes Bump Redux. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this Redux, we're going to be revisiting Australia's quarantine station, otherwise known as Q Station. Are you ready to go back? I'm ready. Quarantine Station, or Q-Station as it's more commonly known, is a heritage site located in Manly, which is a suburb of Sydney in Australia. This site was used as a quarantine station from 1833 until 1983 to help prevent illness from entering the country. Many people died during quarantine and conditions weren't great. After the station closed, it reopened as a historic park with a hotel. This site is reportedly one of the most haunted locations in all of Australia. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the quarantine station. The expanse that the quarantine station is located on was once an area that indigenous tribes occupied, and also used as a burial ground known now as North Head. These indigenous groups are believed to have arrived in Australia around 70,000 years ago, and they refer to this area as Carangel, meaning saltwater country. The first European visitor was a Dutchman by the name of Willem Janzoon, and he arrived in 1606. The Dutch continued throughout the century to explore Australia, and they named it New Holland. The United Kingdom sent explorers as well, and in 1770, Lieutenant James Cook chartered the east coast of Australia and returned to Britain, announcing that it would be a good idea to colonize the continent. The UK did just that, but not in a very favorable way. They decided to send their cast-offs to Australia, and so in 1788, the first fleet arrived in Australia in the area that would become Sydney, with a cargo of convicts. As was the case with explorers to North America, these new residents of Australia brought disease with them, and soon the indigenous people found their numbers declining, with some clans becoming almost completely extinct. As is the case with growing immigration, the need to keep disease from entering the land became apparent. When we say disease, we are talking about diseases like whooping cough and smallpox. Early on, sick people were contained to ships and not allowed to come to land until they were healthy. But healthy people did enter, many carrying disease. The government realized that people had to be put through a quarantine period before being allowed to roam about the colonies. And so, in 1828, this space that had been named Spring Cove at North Head became a place for quarantine. The site was chosen because of its distance from the center of Sydney, 
and the fact that the area had natural springs. In 1833, the quarantine station had officially opened with 36 tents set up for healthy people to live in while waiting for their quarantine to end. Sick people were kept on board ships. In 1838, several buildings were built to replace the tents, and stone markers were set up to mark the boundaries of the site. Quarantines were long, and conditions were miserable. People who died on the ships and in quarantine were buried at the quarantine beach. I mean, I like the beach, but maybe I don't want to be there the entire afterlife. I mean, the first thought that came into my brain was the high tide high washing tide. things away. And <laughs> there goes slowly, grandma. I mean, oh, you're terrible. <laughs> but I mean, truly, if they had a bad storm or something and there was a storm surge, um, yikes. Yeah, I'm just assuming that Quarantine Beach is a big area. A little Kinda further like inland, Beach. Maybe, yeah. maybe up on a big hill or maybe. something. By 1840, the crowding at the station had become abhorrent with four children to a bed. They were probably kicking and biting and doing all kinds of stuff to each other. That's my square of space. Is that what you and your sister did when you had to share a bed? Um, no, but she was a just pretty... Biting. Just biting. Yeah, we just... Bit. <laughs> my sister actually did bite me once. A very memorable time and took a nice little chunk out of my back when she did it, but... Okay, well, this is a very sad, serious situation. Yes. So. A resident superintendent was appointed to help work to make the conditions livable. In 1844, a woman by the name of Louise Ann Meredith wrote in an eyewitness account, quote, Near the north head is the quarantine ground, of which one unlucky vessel was moored when we passed. And on the brow of the cliff, a few tombstones indicate the burial place of those unhappy exiles who died during the time of ordeal, and those whose golden dreams of the far-sought land of promise led but to a lone and desolate grave on its storm-beaten shore. In 1847, the station was expanded to include kitchens, bathrooms, and a hospital, but the area was still only equipped to handle less than 200 people. Most ships would arrive with a 1,000 people. Wow, that's a little bit of overcrowding. Just slightly. In the 1850s, the station was again expanded, but by the 1860s, immigration had drastically slowed down and the station stopped being maintained. This proved to be disastrous when a smallpox epidemic hit Sydney, forcing the quarantine of large numbers of residents in 1881. A royal commission was formed and the station was drastically upgraded. At about this same time, medical discoveries informed us that there was a connection between cleanliness and disease, and so measures were implemented at the station to improve cleanliness. The brick buildings that are a part of the quarantine station to this day were built in the early 1900s. The station was able to accommodate 1,200 people at a time, and the Commonwealth government had taken over operations. Everything was good until the influenza pandemic of 1918. The facility was overstretched, and five of the nursing staff there died of the flu along with many people. After 1919, things improved once again, and only two deaths occurred at the station after that year. The quarantine station saw less and less use, and by the 1970s, it was mostly being used to fumigate cargoes. As long as they're not fumigating people. In 1984, the quarantine station became part of the Sydney Harbor National Park, and a conference and function center was added. The National Parks and Wildlife Service maintains a site, but private funding has had to be used to help prevent the station from falling into complete disrepair. Quarantine station now features Q Station, a hotel with magnificent views, suites, and cottages. Weddings and conferences are held here. There are numerous tours as well that feature history tours and ghost tours, and educational programs are offered. 
Kelly, any location that's been around as long as the quarantine station and had been the location of not only indigenous burial grounds, but also the place where numerous deaths have occurred in less than stellar conditions, has the possibility of paranormal activity. I would expect it. The station has been featured on numerous TV shows, including Ghost Hunters International. Stories of supernatural activity date back to the start of the station. Some of the earliest stories were reported by nurses on night shift who would see ghosts that appeared to be what they described as, quote, Chinese men with long ponytails. Lights would turn on in unoccupied areas of the hospital as well. And shadow people have been seen on several occasions. A young blonde girl spirit has been experienced by tourists on many occasions. She reportedly holds people's hands with her icy grip and leads them around the site. I don't know if I'd be letting her lead me around anywhere. I would. (laughs) (laughs) She occasionally is seen hiding in the bushes and will tug on people's clothing. She's appeared to be so real that some people just assume she is a child taking the tour until no one claims her and guides inform everyone that there were no children booked on the tour. The hospital hosts a couple of ghost nurses believed to be Elizabeth McGregor and Annie Egan, who both lost their lives to Spanish flu while tending to the sick. McGregor had served in World War I and was buried with military honors. Egan had volunteered to help the returned soldiers who were suffering from the Spanish flu, and she caught the flu herself and died only six days later. It's possible she haunts the place because she was Catholic and was refused last rites when she asked for them. There are three rundown and overgrown cemeteries on the property with nearly all the headstones gone. In one cemetery, all that is left is one small headstone surrounded by a black wrought iron fence. The cemetery is reported to be icy cold even in the summer. But the cemeteries are not the creepiest location at the station. The creepiest area is the shower block, and many visitors to the spot, including psychics, claim that it is evil. There's a resident spirit there that seems to have undergone some sort of sexual abuse. Screams are heard coming from a corner of the shower block, and light bulbs explode. The Australian Ghost Hunter Society relays the following tales on their website about the shower block. One resident gave his family a tour of the shower block. Feeling uneasy, he encouraged everyone to return back to his residence as dusk was approaching and none of the roads had lights along with most of the buildings. The family, however, insisted on seeing the shower block. They entered the building and saw the cable box, which contained exposed cables that were hanging out. The building had no electricity, and to make sure and prove this, the resident flipped the light switch a couple of times. They all walked down the center aisle, and upon reaching the third cubicle, the end door, which was rusted open, suddenly slammed shut. So much for the rest, huh? Wow. To the surprise of everyone, the lights came on. Don't know how those got powered. And footsteps paced around at the opposite end of the shower block. And you can imagine everyone exited the shower block at a quick little pace there. Kelly, we're getting the hell out of here. (laughs) Not surprising. I guess they didn't want to see it so badly anymore. No. When they walked out, the lights turned off. They decided to have another look, so they walked in again, and once again, the lights turned on when approaching the third cubicle. Don't know what was special about that, but somebody was saying hi. In December of 1992, another group went on a night tour and went inside the shower block after being told the above story about the lights turning on. The third cubicle shower turned on. The women all screamed and ran out. No one had actually turned the shower on. I would just scream and run out because my hair's going to get wet. No, no. (laughs) Don't mess my hair up. You're the same way. I know. I'd be like, ah, I'd be really angry. Okay, you can push me down, but you better not mess my hair up. (laughs) You are very particular about your hair. I am very particular. Don't touch it. 
And then I let ghosts all the time touch it, or at least you. I tell them to all the time touch it. (laughs) Two of them dared to go back inside and turn the shower off. Once inside, a loud banging sound came from the other end of the showers, which sounded as if someone was kicking the corrugated iron. Now, if this is made out of iron, that's interesting because spirits aren't supposed to like iron, especially evil. And they said whatever's in here seems to be evil. They all nearly had a stroke on the spot and ran for it out of there. At the time, there was no one else around that could have turned the shower on or created the banging noises, and the women were all too terrified to be playing tricks on each other. Adelaide Haunted Horizons wrote of the shower room, The shower block has also had activity reported. A tall figure of a man and a little girl have been seen. The little girl, aged around six years old, is heard to complain that she doesn't want to get under the acid shower, and who could blame her? Ross told us of a lady on his tour that nervously came to stand next to him. She said she was down at the end of the shower when she was touched and spinning around, thinking it was her friend, found nobody was near her. Another girl came to him saying she felt boiling hot like she had been in a scalding shower so wanted to get out. Once outside, she felt fine. They have no records of anybody having died in the shower block. Here we go with something else physicality-wise. She's feeling like she's boiling hot in a scalding shower, and she's not getting hit with water. I mean, how is that? Is it because a spirit is like jumped inside of her and is remembering something from the past that happened to them? I mean, how? I don't understand. How does that work? That group also conducted their own investigation and reported, We started our investigation in the Gravedigger's Cottage, and on this occasion, Charmaine Mansfield from Tasmania's Most Haunted joined us in looking for the quarantine station ghosts. As we were setting the equipment up, the first two words to come out of the obelisk was Karen, which is Cag's real name, and Moss. This has been my nickname for a greater part of my life. That would kind of freak me out, because I'd be like, how do you know my name, unless somebody there had called her by that nickname? We introduced ourselves and started with an EVP session, and on this occasion, we appeared to get lucky with a man's voice appearing on the recording. At this point, Ross had left us alone inside the building, so there were only us three ladies in there. Not only did we get the voice, but one of our balls triggered when we started asking about the horrible things that may have been done there. Next, I was put on the headphones for the Estes experiment, ghost box with headphones on. Almost immediately I heard, go away, and then the name Martin came out. When Cag and Charmaine asked if he doesn't like women in there, it spat out, witch. Wow. At the same time, I was feeling the floor vibrating but strangely, almost like the floor was humming. Witches came out again when they asked whoever they were talking to to light up the equipment. Most of what was coming out was mainly leave and enough. We then moved to the shower block. Clearly somebody did not want them in there, and now they're going to the worst place. On asking if there was anybody there tonight, could they let us know, the obelisk immediately came out with, no. (laughs) I'm not participating (laughs) with you. Even though I just told you I'm not. We decided to go with an Estes and sent Cag off down the hallway with the headset. This is where it got interesting, although we didn't know it at the time. Cag came out with the name Cameron, which is my son's name, and I commented on how I liked that name and why I gave it to my son. Cag followed up quickly with mum and then stomach. The next day, I had a phone call from my husband to say that my son, Cameron, had been rushed to the hospital with appendicitis. Whoa. Whoa is right. Oh boy, how in the world? Was somebody giving me a warning of what was happening back home at that time? Or here is a weirder question. Could Cameron somehow have projected this himself while under anesthesia or asleep? Interesting question. I don't know. Is it a ghost or was it Cameron coming to her through something? 
I've often wondered, you know, with anesthesia, with dreams, you know, sometimes you think, can you travel in your dreams? Astral projection. People do that. Or, you know, when people are having lucid dreams, sometimes they seem to go somewhere. What does anesthesia do to you? Can you like have an out-of-body experience while under anesthesia? These are things I want to know. Final thought, coincidental radio? Yeah, I don't think so. We don't believe in coincidences anyway. Our final place was the hospital where, upon introducing ourselves to the matron, the flashing ball triggered on one of the beds. Our EVP session revealed a couple of maybes, but not concrete. So we went to Estes and this time put Charmaine on the headphones. The first word that came out was Anne. And this came out several times, remembering that at this stage, we didn't know about Annie Egan. She's one of the nurses that we talked about. Ross filled us in as we were getting responses. After a few more relevant responses, it was sadly time to finish. And our investigation looking for the Sydney quarantine station ghost was at an end. Looks pretty darn successful to me. Well, certainly. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. On the blog Ghost and Girl, author Laura reports an experience she had while visiting the station. During a ghost tour at the station, I experienced the smell of potatoes as we walked towards the second-class dining facilities. I wasn't the only one, as a handful of other tour attendees also picked up on the smell, but there were others who couldn't smell anything at all. The tour guide then proceeded to reveal to the group that the smell of potatoes is often picked up by members of tour groups. This event sticks out in my mind due to the fact that at the time, the quarantine station did not have a restaurant or accommodation, so there was no obvious explanation for the smell. As the station is quite isolated, there is little opportunity for contamination from other sites. Other sounds are heard at times, too, that range from the sound of keys being dropped to rocks being rolled on the ground to scratching noises. People are touched, and many get that feeling that they are being watched. Sonia details the following personal experience on her blog, Life, Love, and Hiccups. That's a good name. (laughs) (laughs) I love that blog name. And there's a photo that accompanies this blog post as well. In the caretaker's cottage apparently resides the ghost of Sam. According to mediums, Sam is a poltergeist who, along with the ability to move things, push and even knock people over and manipulate the temperature from hot to icy cold breezes, Sam is also a cranky soul who doesn't like people nosing around his cottage. Despite being told this, we still nervously but respectfully wandered around the dark rooms of the caretaker's cottage in the pitch black, our eyes adjusting to the darkness and our senses on high alert. Apart from the overwhelming eeriness of the cottage, nothing much happened. Just a few bangs here and there, but nothing that sent me running from the building. As we left the cottage, I lingered at the entrance with an older couple who were on the tour with us. I was standing across the doorway, pointing my phone into the empty cottage and taking photos, when we distinctly felt a warm breeze pass between us. This was odd in itself, given we were standing outside on a hill where it was freezing cold. The three of us commented on it at the same time and nervously laughed it off before moving on to the next building. I remember when originally doing this episode, and this was, I believe, the first time I'd ever heard, now I've heard it since, of a ghost, instead of being a cold spot, was a warm spot. And I wonder if it was because it was so cold outside that they weren't quite that cold. So it felt warmer than the outside temperature. So it wasn't really like a little hot ball going by. Right. Could be. a warm fart passing along. (laughs) It was actually... Wasn't that burrito they ate previously? Yeah. A ghost that just wasn't, you know, 20 degrees or something. That they were hitting 40 degrees or something. 
There are many stories about Sam in the caretaker's or gravedigger's cottage. So it's like Mort. Yes. <laughs> Mort has a better name, but yeah. But there are also stories that include a second ghost named Martin, and they got Martin on the spirit box. Yeah, or the Ovilus or something. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. They got that name. Gregory wrote, At the gravedigger's cottage, a lot of activity. I remember standing in the doorway of the laundry saying both the names of Martin and Samuel. Ask them if they're here to make this device light up, and sure enough, it did. Kenzie and Pip 6839 wrote on YouTube, This place is insane. I've had encounters both times I've been there. The first time I had someone tug on my bag in the hospital wing as I turned my back on the original beds. The second time was only two weeks ago. I was in the gravedigger's cottage in the bathroom and wasn't getting much activity, so I became more pushy in my questions. Uh-oh. Shouldn't do that. Gotta be respectful. My group went back to the front door and the lady I was with started to walk out, meaning I was the last one in the back room. I started to walk away when I felt some kind of dark force manifest in the bathroom doorway behind me and I turned to look but decided not to go back in as it felt very bad. I started to walk out of the back room when I heard a very distinct noise behind me and suddenly felt like someone was marching up behind me very angrily. I believe it may have been Samuel, the man accused of murdering a young woman as I'd been asking questions about the murder. I'm not afraid of ghosts, but in that moment, feeling like a very large and angry man was just inches away from my back, my blood ran completely cold, and all of the air in my lungs escaped in one sharp gasp, and my body went into fight or flight as I involuntarily booked it for the front door. We went back into the back room a few moments later to find that the cupboard doors had been swung all the way open. Goodness. Should always be respectful. Yep. Emily was there in 2021 and wrote, My partner and I went on this ghost tour this week. We entered it expecting not to experience much, since we didn't want to get our hopes up as we knew the ghosts won't necessarily perform every night. But it was an amazing experience. The meters the guide gave us that measure paranormal activity really made the experience much more interactive and exciting. You could really feel the presence of the spirits in certain areas, to the point where it even felt as though my chest was tightening. My body was tensing very hard, and at one point, I felt something grab my hand. The creepiest part was when we both saw what we believe was the pantry man. He's coming for the chips. Was he taking the cookies? That would be terrifying to me. My mom used to hide in the pantry and eat cookies when I was little. I'd be knocking on the door. <laughs> she didn't want to share them with you. She didn't want me to know. I don't no know. No cookies for you. <laughs> They're mine. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but she told me that story. She fessed up when I was older. But yeah. Yeah. I used to sit in there, Kelly, and eat cookies. That's why there was always crumbs all over the floor. <laughs> Standing by the window in that building with the hall and kitchen. I've never been on a ghost tour before, so I was very hyped to actually be able to see a ghost on this one. I can't even imagine. Most people don't see ghosts on ghost tours. And then there's those of us who actually specifically go and hunt them and still haven't seen them. But yeah, your first ghost tour and you see one. Okay. NBD. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Joy wrote in November 2022, Simon, our tour guide, told us about his previous personal experiences whilst conducting the tours and also what happened to the people on his tours in relation to the various spirits that occupy the Q station. People have been scratched, vomited, or seen or felt ghosts and etc. Whether you believe it or not was subjective, but it was convincing. 
It was great being able to hold an EMF meter as part of this tour because it lit up alarmingly when we entered the gravedigger's cottage. This was by far the scariest part of the entire tour. One of the women in our group felt unwell and was bent over and said she felt as though the back of her neck was scratched. We were told by Simon that people have been scratched by spirits in the past while being in this cottage due to what took place here in the past. I personally felt like there was a suffocating vibe being in the cottage. My heart was racing and I had a strange pressure-like headache. wonder if she's sensitive. Luckily, there wasn't anything major to show for the woman who felt the scratches, but a few of us witnessed cupboard doors opening and closing on their own and also springing open when someone closed it. I would have tried to debunk that and just see if that's something they do. Yeah, definitely. It was so scary and unsettling that it turned one of the difficult participants into someone who no longer kicked up trouble for everyone during the remainder of the tour. Not skeptical anymore, are we? Kate wrote in September 2022, My friend and I had traveled from Melbourne on the Friday, and my Sydney cousin accompanied us on the Saturday night ghost tour with Brandon. It was very interesting and informative. Have been on a number of similar tours, and some weird things have happened, but nothing like this evening. A lovely lady handed me the EMF device, which went crazy on entering the cottage, particularly the chair in the lounge. The highlight for me was the activity around the wardrobe in bedroom one. As I stepped away while pointing the EMF device, the door flung open and whacked the back of my hand with quite some force. Ouch. I'm sorry to say, but the shock sent me cursing out of the room. (laughs) I decided to be brave, re-entered, and challenged the closed door again, thinking that in no way could it happen again. But sure enough, it did. It didn't hit me that time. And then once more. Three times to have a door swing open like that, and enough that it's, you know, not just kind of squeaking open slowly. It wasn't a gentle opening. It literally flung outwards each of the three times. Then, after the third time, the EMF went quiet, and everyone felt a cold chill move through the room and out the door. My scientific brain has been mulling this impossibility for days now with no solution. Totally baffled. I even challenged poor Brandon. Did you do that? The other five or six people present assured me that he did nothing. They had been watching him. That cottage is the most active and very oppressive part of the tour. In hindsight, a wonderful experience, but not for the faint-hearted. So I would say here at Q Station, the shower block and the caretaker or gravedigger's cottage, best places to hit. Absolutely, I'm there. The quarantine station provided a very needed service many years ago. The Q Station provides a wonderful service today by giving people a chance to get away from it all for a little rest and relaxation and fine dining. Is it possible that the station is still providing a service and accommodations for those that have already departed this plane of existence? Is the quarantine station haunted? That That is is for you to decide. decide. Sounds like a cool place there in Australia. I don't know if we'll ever make it to the continent down there, but... Down under? Yeah. If I can ever get you on a plane that long? Too far to fly. (laughs) I want to thank you guys for tuning in for this Redux. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye.